How does design excel at producing experience outcomes? What's the role of a chief design officer? What does it look like for design to have a strategic role? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? I'm super excited about today's guest. She's Valerie Casey. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief Design Officer at Walmart, which is the largest employer on the planet. It has something like 2 million employees. There she leads a team of designers creating the future of retail. Her team's mission is to bring access and dignity through design excellence to everyone, regardless of their zip code or bank account balance. Valerie's team uses design thinking and rapid experimentation to inspire and align cross-functional groups throughout the portfolio, from creating customer services and employee tools to designing digital products and in-store services. Prior to Walmart, Valerie has had numerous leadership roles. She was the chief product officer at Samsung Next, executive leader at IDEO, Frog Design, and Pentagram. She is the founder of the Designers Accord, the largest global community of designers working to create positive social and environmental impact. Valerie was honored as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and is a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Casey was named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company, Guru of the Year by Fortune Magazine, Hero of the Environment by Time Magazine, Master of Design by Fast Company, and one of the world's most influential designers by Business Week. We really appreciate all the social media love from our listeners. There was a flurry of activity on Twitter. Thank you to Sarah Olson, Lori Jones, Lawrence Cardalong, the American Philosophical Association. That was pretty cool. And to Susanna Fox, one of our favorite listeners and a previous guests on the show. That's how you support us. You can also support us by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars and leaving us a review there. Go to our podcast show notes, sign up for our newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Leglisi, will put in your inbox great stuff to read about around design and health. Okay, now here's my conversation with Valerie Casey. Valerie Casey, welcome to Design Lab. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Absolutely. Fantastic to be here with you today. Thank you, Bond, for having me. So you've been called one of the world's most influential designers and been described as a career shape shifter. And I'm curious about your design journey. How did you get into design? Did your parents go, hey, you're going to become a designer? <laughs> you know, I wonder what what my trajectory would have been had I been encouraged to be a designer. First of all, you know, appreciate the warm welcome. And for me, my journey has been not a, about a journey of developing my career, but it's a journey of, of growth as a person and discovering who I am. And we're all constantly discovering who we are, aren't we? I actually moved to America when I was small. I was born in Ireland and that's where my whole family was. And I'm pretty sure we didn't know anybody in the arts or in design. And so that wasn't in my consideration set or understanding. I didn't have any role models. You didn't come from a family of designers. No, no. My dad was a banker and my they're big philanthropists. And so very service oriented, I have mm. to say. And that's mm. been a big theme in how I have shaped my career. But a funny thing, I, I've always been an avid reader. I learned to read when I was when I was really little. 
And my creative work that I did in high school and college was in film and photography. And so had, you know, had a bent in that and had a, a real love for creating stories. But everyone in my family, and it's kind of an East Coast thing, I think, upon graduation from college would go to avail of this research program that mm. provides aptitude testing for two days. And this is like mid 90s, right? And so, you know, my parents said, okay, now you've graduated from college or, you know, you've moved. I had moved to San Francisco from the East Coast and was working, you know, as a barista or something. And actually, I was writing, doing environmental reports and working in a coffee shop at the same time. And um, I went and I did these aptitude tests for two days and they were, you know, verbal and written and spatial. And really what aptitude testing does is it helps you understand what you are naturally good at rather than mm. what you've been programmed to think you're interested in or good at yeah. or what your friends are doing, which is you know quite common in that age group. And at the end of all of this testing, they synthesize it and they brought me into this big room and you know sat me down. It's very serious. And they said, you know, we've distilled everything that we think you're good at and we've isolated it down to two careers that you would really excel in. And the first one, you know, I just kind of bated breath, my pencil and pen there in hand. The first one is, we think you will be an extraordinary surgeon. And I was wow, like, oh, really? Okay, wow. very interesting. They said, you know, you're, the way you systems think and connect things and the way you're able to see, the, you know, generations of degrees of impact between different pieces of a puzzle, you know, you have all of the aptitudes for a surgeon. And then they said in the second career, and I, I was thinking, oh, this is great. You know, like that's, the, I've seen lots of doctors on TV, like that's a cool job, yeah. you know, and, and you know, super interested in helping people and things like that. But they said, and the second thing is there's this new thing, it's called the internet. And <laughs> you actually have the capability to really be one of the leading thinkers in this area, we think in, in digital media and sort of a design thinking, systems thinking. This is before any of those terms. Yeah. And I said, the internet? Oh, like, I've heard of that. I have email, but like, I don't think that's ever going to take off. <laughs> <laughs> so so then I left the place thinking, oh, I'm going to be a, a doctor. But I stopped into a bookshop and I picked up Wired Magazine, which was, I think I was on like its third issue at the time. And, uh -huh. and there were no books on the topic because it was all so brand new, but lots of magazines studied them all over the weekend, became convinced that the internet was this amazing thing, and quit my job on the Monday, enrolled in the only digital media program at the time that was offered by any college, which was actually uh -huh. San Francisco State, the University okay. of San, San Francisco, and quickly got called on to work with National Geographic and Microsoft to take their content and put it onto the internet. And Nat Geo was like, we have all these vignettes that are in stories and like, can you just put them on the internet? And they had a very much of a kind of a, a video and movie sense of how you would do that. But of course, the internet is all nonlinear. And yeah. so it just activated this other part of my brain and moved from, you know, taking stories and putting them into a nonlinear narrative in a way that could be really understood no matter how you, your entry points and exit points. Then you know, e-commerce became massive. Yeah. Then I went to graduate school at Yale at the School of Architecture there to actually start to understand from a critical theory perspective, the impact and influence design could have on larger cultural and social issues. So had grown as a practitioner in that and have done all sorts of different kinds of design work from digital design, like I was mentioning before, but also industrial design have made lots of physical products and mm. environments and wayfinding and how we move into 
different environments and interact with each other and spaces. And then, of course, like service design, which is so much of what we do, and behavioral design, did some work in healthcare. And all of that is what I get to do at Walmart. And so I feel like I've sort of arrived at this you know, chapter where I've been able to synthesize all of yeah. these great learnings in the last really almost five years that I've been at Walmart now. I want to read this quote. I really love it. Preparing for this interview, you say, I think of design in the broadest sense, where all of us are designers. When you wake up in the morning, you design by your day, you design what you're going to wear, how you're going to present yourself. These are all design decisions. And I love that because there's an opportunity or opening there for non-designers to practice design. So I'm curious to know your thoughts of if you're not a paid designer or if you didn't study design in school, can you practice design? Mm, That's such a good question, isn't it? Because I think that a lot of the tools that we have in design are available to different kinds of people. And so there's been this friction between the old guard of designers who feel like the practice and craft and discipline of design needs to be owned and managed uh-huh. by a certain cohort of trained designers. I had a you know kind of a non-traditional entry point into design. And so I actually believe that all of us have this opportunity to bring greater intentionality to the decisions we make every day. And those that intentionality means that we think about the biases we bring. And of course, without biases, you probably wouldn't be able to manage all of the decisions we make because you, you shortcut through micro decisions all the yeah. time. But we do a training here that I've actually drawn from lots of the great work that I did at IDEO and Frog and Pentagram and, and through different work that I did in the Designers Accord as well which helps essentialize the kind of core pieces of design thinking to make mm. design thinking accessible to people. Because it's not really about, I think that the, the opportunity here is not to have people practice design and be making logos or graphic design or whatever their yeah. interpretation of design is, the craft. It's really thinking about what are the principles of design that we can use to make all systems better. And mm. those really are empathy. So understanding from another person's perspective without having that lived experience definition of a problem. We spend so much time mm-hmm. training people, have trained thousands of people within Walmart already in all different disciplines to kind of pay attention to the way that we frame problems. Because when we frame them, often because we're moving so quickly and we want to mitigate risk and we're trying to you know, be as crisp as we can with communication, oftentimes we embed the solution or a suggested solution within the problem space. Yeah. And it's the simplest example of that is like, what's five plus five, right? You know, you're, you're either going to say the answer, the correct answer, or uh-huh. you're not going to get the answer correct. Yeah. But if you say what two numbers add up to 10, you uh-huh. have a very different sense of an approach to that. So mm-hmm. we try to teach that as a creative practice. And then of course, shortcutting into ideation, people are often quite intimidated with this idea of like, how do I come up with new ideas? And so teaching the tools to that, to have a great, like kind of fluidity and all of ideation really depends on collaboration, mm. on building on others' ideas and iterating, right? Yeah. And making things better instead of having just one shot at it. So it kind of designed as a wonderful entry point because it's benign and it's creative yeah. and it's interesting, but it's an entry point into how we can all be better people, right? Yeah. How we can interact with each other in a really respectful, interesting way to help improve our planet and our communities. So that's what makes me so excited about that sort of democratization. Of yeah, design. I, I love that. And I love the part about the framing of the problem and understanding the problem and how design can help us to do that. I I often have to do that in my work 
at the hospital where, you know, I think doctors are, we're a little bit arrogant. And so we think we understand the problem, but so many times we get into this challenge and let's take one example of emergency room crowding and the solution is, oh, we just need bigger emergency rooms, right? We need to expand our beds. But then if you take a deep dive, you go, well, there's actually 50 people in the waiting room. There's 50 patients who are boarding, like they're admitted to the hospital and they're in hallways waiting for a bed. So if we improved our processes to get these patients upstairs into where they belong, we would free up the space. So it's not really a space issue, but it's more of a, a system issue. And I love that design has been able to help me understand the problem. Right. Well, this, I mean, it's, isn't it that one of our favorite strategies here, I think across all the whole design industry and design community is the five whys, right? It's not answering or trying to diagnose a problem at the surface, but it's interrogating and asking that series. And this is a method that was started in Toyota back in the 1930s mm-hmm. that has carried on and gotten extremely popular. Taichi Ocho, I believe is the name of the, the original person who kind of advanced this idea but asking that in a non, non-aggressive way, but asking those series of questions of the five whys to really get to root cause. Because a lot of the time, our initial kind of status quo, let's move quickly and solve the problem answer is not the root cause of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think like the reasons why I'm so excited about what Walmart's doing in healthcare as well is kind of what you're, you're describing and how you've approached that systems thinking problem which is if you kind of pulled it out another degree, you'd find that people are going into emergency rooms because they are not getting care earlier on when they may have indications that they need care. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why people don't seek care is because they either don't have the means or they're afraid that they will be billed in this way that they have no idea how much something costs. And so you probably know how in 2019 started to open healthcare facilities throughout the country. We have about yeah. 24, a couple dozen now. Wow, there's already yeah, a couple, a couple dozen. dozen. Yeah, uh, a couple uh, dozen in four different states. So Georgia, Arkansas, Florida, and Illinois. And are, are these clinics in a Walmart uh, center? They're just, they're separate buildings, but they're just next to it. And because we wanted to make sure that people felt, you know, that they had privacy and being able to enter into that yeah. kind of other sort of special space, as opposed to a retail space where you're yeah. going to avail of lots of different kinds of services. But one of the things that I really love about this is that everything is transparent pricing, right? So regardless oh, yeah. of insurance status, you literally go in there and you know, an annual checkup is going to be 30 bucks. You get your t- your kid's teeth cleaned, it's $15. This is regardless of your insurance status. You know, you need a counselor because you've just worked through some issues, it's $45. Mm-hmm. Vision exam, $45. So, you know, these are- That's amazing. When you know what the investment is, you're taking this thing of just clarity around transparency, around pricing yeah. and applying it there. And it makes services far more accessible. And of course, we provide lots and lots of yeah. community-based services as well for free. But this transparent pricing has been incredibly powerful. And now we've, we, last year we added on telehealth. Yeah. For years, I've been using the Walmart formulary for the pricing for prescription drugs. And a lot of our patients in the emergency room who may not have insurance, when they, if, you know, if they would have like a pneumonia and prescribe the antibiotics, they're like, how much does it cost? And I have no idea. I have no, but then what I've been doing for years, my practice is, well, let me go to the Walmart formulary. And it's online. I go, well, here, I know it's $4. So you could go here. So 
right. you have four dollars, you get for this antibiotic. It's been a game changer. So right. and extending that price transparency across other services is so cool. Yeah. Well, that example, the about the generics, that we do the four dollar generics, and this has started, you know, many, many years ago. But Walmart is so big that when we are able to make a big decision like that, we can influence lots of other providers because they want to be competitive or they're working with us. And so they're yeah. adhering to those. And so it just makes all of this more accessible. So trying to help people live healthier lives rather than just mitigating situations where they have an illness or some kind of acute condition, like that's why this is important, yeah. right? Living happier, healthier lives all through their lives rather than just when people yeah. get sick. Right? And what was great is that often it was the only place where it was affordable enough for many years for them to get the prescription and it was convenient. Like right. so many of the population I treat live near a Walmart so they can actually right. get to the Walmart. So I was like, it was literally the only option for many of the patients that, that I saw in the emergency room or see in the emergency room. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a Walmart within 10 miles of 90% of the U.S. population. What? Right? Wow. Staggering. And then we have about 4,600 stores and 4,000 of them are located within that 10 miles of designated medically underserved areas. And so we often find that people, sometimes the only access they have to somebody who is a healthcare professional is a pharmacist. When I started at Walmart, one of the things that I realized, and you come from a service design perspective, and service design really is the choreography of the back of house and front of house. Mm -hmm. And you know, knowing that this is such a precious and important area, the pharmacist, customer or patient relationship is so important. And the, the UI, the user experience of all of the tools and services that the customer was using and the pharmacists were using were so different. So the customer had kind of, you know, the regular an app that they were using to place an order or to, to do whatever. And they would come up to the pharmacist and the pharmacist was trying to describe that exact problem, which is like, how much is this going to cost? Yeah. And it's very difficult for the pharmacist to give an accurate understanding until they collect all your information, yeah. they suss it out. And the pharmacists kept describing when we were doing research out in the stores, they would swivel their monitor towards the customer to show them that, hey, I can't figure this out unless you fill out these other parts of the form. But the everything on the screen was like basically in DOS, right? It was like this <laughs> yeah, antiquated yeah. UI and it didn't look, it wasn't friendly for the uh -huh. pharmacist to use and certainly wasn't friendly for a customer to understand. And so they were, we were actually... We had tools and services that were keeping people apart rather than mm. connecting them. One of the, the things that I'm you know, really proud of that we've been able to do at Walmart to bring people together is by creating a design system that is incredibly inclusive. It has very high mm. standards for accessibility, but it basically uses all front of house and back of house tools, enterprise tools, customer tools, and they're all designed in the same way. So that if you are working in a Walmart 10 hours a week, or you're a customer of a Walmart or anyway, in the, the Walmart ecosystem, your the look and feel of all those tools be the same. Yeah. The interaction patterns are all the same. And so you could you can seamlessly move through all those services, which is really powerful. And I think there's such an opportunity with the accessibility of Walmart and for these clinics to be housed next to them. I was saying before, you know, I was when 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 I go on road trips with my family often we stop at a Walmart because we know we can get most of the things that we need or we forgot at the Walmart. Right. And and knowing that if, hey, if there was a clinic there, you know, that, yeah, that's a signal of like, hey, there's a place where I know I can get care. Because sometimes it's confusing as to sure. know where to go. Then there's some random urgent care and you go, 
is that a good urgent care or or right. is it not? And like, and often when you have what we call acute unscheduled care, you don't have time to make that decision to research it. Like you just need to go. You're sick. Exactly. And and knowing that there's some standardization across these access healthcare access points is really really promising. I'm, I'm excited about that. And and I'm curious to know you have a big role. You're the chief design officer at Walmart. Like, what yeah. does that mean? Like, do you touch <laughs> like everything from what goes how the store looks like, the experience to the healthcare component to the pharmacy? I'm curious to know like the breadth of your role there. Yeah. Well, it's every single day I learn a hundred new things. So, and I could say that after five years, I haven't ever worked anywhere where I have, I've been able to grow and learn as a practitioner and as a person in such a, you know, kind of amazing environment. So that is a really exciting and it's because of the scope of the role. So we do design all of the front of house and back of house. And what I mean by that is the design team, my team, is the design team for Walmart US. And think about like all of Walmart is about the Walmart enterprise includes Walmart US, which is the stores in America. It's our club called Sam's Club and it's our international division. And we have stores in China and Africa and all, all sorts of, you know, all around the world, India, big presence. Walmart US is about 70% of the whole picture. And mm -hmm. so we design all of the customer and member work for Walmart US then all of the tools you see inside the stores, whether it's the healthcare tools, the auto care, the folks who in the, in the bakery, all of the front end, all of Whoa. our associates who are you know, taking things from the back room and stocking and doing all of the inventory and picking for our, our online orders. We do all of our supply chain. So mm. literally get into trucks and design the software our truck drivers are using to do routing from the distribution centers to the stores, knowing which place to back into with their different pallets. And then all of the enterprise tools that we use for our partners. So we have lots of sellers and we have an open and fair marketplace where we invite sellers to, you know, grow their businesses with that. We have advertisers who help, you know, kind of increase the opportunity for our customers to discover new products and lots of these pieces. And, and we get to design all of that, which is amazing because not only are they really interesting design challenges in themselves, yeah. but the cross-pollination between all of those areas, you might get something that is remarkable in the way that we are positioning and fitting things together in a distribution center in the supply chain and say, actually, that should help us understand how we can approach this problem in financial services or something that we do in e-commerce and bringing in that experience might really inform the way we do something in our healthcare activities. And, and so you get this great sense when you have one team with subject matter experts, but a lots of, you know, a tight community, lots of cross-pollination, you get this richness of yeah. all of these different kinds of businesses together. So it's a real privilege to get to lead this amazing team that has so much access. And we actually, I'm often told we have the broadest purview of all of Walmart. Mm -hmm. So we see those pieces. So really yeah. it is a responsibility to do that cross-pollination. It's a lot of fun though. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love the problem of supply chain. So, you know, mm. when I think often when I speak to people who aren't in design, they think, oh, so it's like logo and typography and font. Well, that's one part of it, but like designing supply chain is huge. And it's actually one of the biggest problems I feel in healthcare where it is shocking how we run out of things in the hospital that are so mm. basic, like salt water, normal saline, 
like there was a shortage of that at one point because wow. the supply chain was disrupted because with Puerto Rico and the hurricane and and now it's every day it's a basic thing like one of the most commonly used benzodiazepines that we use to treat patients with seizures and agitation like we've run out of that right and like IV contrast for getting CAT scans there was a global shortage of that and so we at times were limited to do a CAT scan with higher resolution because of a supply chain disruption and wow. I and I feel like we in healthcare can learn so much from you know companies like Walmart who have these global supply chains and the design processes around it. And, and I'm curious to know, how do you do the research, the design research into these big problems that, that you're trying to Im- improve or solve for? I mean, when you are in a customer-facing business, you want to serve customers in the the best way possible. And the very basic is making sure that you have the right assortment there, right? So you have the products in stock and they're priced correctly and they're the right products. But all of it has to work in this system altogether. And I, I do think that that's actually something that can be a great way that we can all learn from each other's industries too, because the system has to be incredibly connected, right? We can't just think about well, we're going to sell this in apparel and it needs to, and that's absent from all of the logistics and how somebody might buy, you know, exercise equipment while they're buying apparel and food. So we try to see the the adjacencies in a much more clear way. I also think that, you know, and I, I've worked in healthcare before, mostly on the creating concepts for behavior change, which mm-hmm. has been super interesting. Because the healthcare system is largely built on, it feels like on a a financial system, right? And so you're often constrained by not just regulatory constraints, but by just how payers and providers have to interact within the system that we have currently. But I think that in retail, we rely so deeply on learning from data in a very, very quick way and iterating constantly. So you never are, and it, it, that's that's been the big interesting transition in working with Walmart. So we're we're sixty year old company, and the core business is obviously in in bricks and mortar. It's in stores, and so that store mindset. You have to be. I mean, it's very difficult to run stores, and Walmart I think does it really really well. We have lots of room to improve, as as always, in customer service and all sorts of different pieces of it, and we're getting there. But the data piece, how, how we're running a digital business and digitally empowering all those stores, especially through the way that we approach it in a design, is by trying things, looking at the data and iterating very, very quickly. And that's been great to be part of that transformation. But I do wonder, like, if you only think about inventory as something that you do on a Monday, you'll never be able to have the benefit of iterating. And so I don't, I don't know if that they are the causes of the supply chain issues that you just described. There's also at Walmart, the two-thirds of our products that we sell from Walmart are made or grown in the U.S. What? Two-thirds? Yeah. That's, I'm like shocked by that. That's yeah. a lot. Well, I mean, we have marketplace wow. sellers and they source from different places, but uh-huh. the, of the products we sell in our super centers and, and stores and online that we own, yeah, two-thirds. And wow. that helps us mitigate major international supply chain issues too. So we're able to get that and also support, you know, the economy in a different kind of way as well. But it is like, it's that constant iteration and experimentation mindset. And when you have large systems, especially brick and mortar systems, there's such a capital expense for all physical 
yeah. you know, pieces. And so there's a, you know, you kind of say, well, we've got the data and let's just go for it. But we have to shift out of that mindset and be far more agile in our thinking. I think that that's, that's where design is really able to contribute a lot to in my role. Have first spent the couple first couple of years here in really focusing on transforming all of the digital tools and services that we use, front of house and back of house, mm. all through the supply chain. And now we're starting to say, how can we think about the flows for different parts of the stores, and how do we enable all the store experience with digital tools, and how can we make sure that our inventory is you know real time, and how we we brought in a really cool new tool, inventory assessment that our associates do. And it's really hard to count how many what's called on hands you have in a store. Mm-hmm. So how many, you know, in a pile of jeans, how many are there and what sizes are they? So we created this really cool handheld device that clicks kind of like a little bit of like a Geiger counter or metal detector as you go around and wave this magic wand to understand and read the RFID tags yeah. on all of these pieces of, of merchandise. And it's fun for the associates. Like it is actually, they describe it as like it's one of our best utilized products and with the highest ratings because it doesn't have to be drudgery to do all of this work. You can actually get that work done, but do it in a human-centered way that respects that we are people. We have the higher order ability to think and be discerning and connect with people in a different way. So how do we free people up from doing those, those kind of mundane activities and then for the activities that they need to do routinely so we get that, you know, always on sort of feeling, whether it's in healthcare or wherever, have the tools there that that aren't difficult to use and that, you know, help kind of speed along the process too, yeah. so that they're bought in. This reminds me of another quote I found by you. You say, designers bring great creativity and optimism to the challenges before them. And in healthcare, I don't think we have a lot of creativity or optimism <laughs> uh, during, during this present time. Uh, it's a really yeah. hard time to be in healthcare. And I was curious to know, do you think hospital systems can benefit from a chief design officer? And my second question would be, did Walmart have a chief design officer before you? And if not, Mm. it's pretty innovative thinking for them to go, hey, I think we need this type of position because most hospital systems wouldn't think, oh, we need a chief design officer. Yeah. You know, oh, that's it's such a, a juicy question. So when I actually started at Walmart, design in big companies, especially big older companies like Walmart, although we think that we're just at the beginning of our of our long life, design was sort of at the end of the spectrum. So business would decide on a product that we need to, to do and the engineers would build it and you'd sort of paint it with design as an afterthought. And design was not recognized as a strategic tool. And that's, that is sort of the situation that I came into. And I think that there were some people who felt like, oh, design could be interesting. And it's, and like you said before, it's far more than just how you visually dress something. It's actually problem solving. It's figuring out how people work. It's removing friction. It's creating efficiencies throughout that. It's a lot of organizational design. It's a lot of systems thinking that's the work that we do. We do all of the utility and mechanics for the day-to-day work of the entire company, no matter what role you're in. And, um, So we actually did something where for the first six quarters that I was at Walmart and knowing that it's a very, you know, it's a fortune one company. So we're very much on the quarter mindset where we're delivering back to the market and sharing progress Mm -hmm. all the time. We created a design impact report every single quarter where we took every Uh single feature we created and quantified it. And we quantified it for money saved, money earned, 
you know, when we were able to convert people, when we were able to schedule people, every single thing. And just every slide had a feature that we did or part of a product and it quantified it. And so so after six quarters, we had the company convinced because we spoke in the lingua franca of the organization, which was around metrics. And they quickly learned that we were able to produce significant bottom line improvements and top line improvements. So, you know, revenue and costs. And that was transformative. And so we then we started to bring in innovation sprints. And so this is, comes from my agency background around like IDEO and Frog and Pentagram. We started to imagine what the future can look like. And that show, don't tell mindset yeah. can be incredibly compelling, I think, in any environment and especially in healthcare environments too, because people then say, oh, it's not just we're talking about a strategy. We're seeing it through the customer's eyes or the end user's eyes. Yeah. And then they start to think about the end user more, right? So it's all of this concatenated effect you quantify the argument so that you establish the reason why you're in the room. And then you kind of graduate through this. And it's been extremely exciting to see the transformation and get the support. And we have tremendous support. I report to the the CEO. We've never had a chief design officer before. I don't think anyone would have ever thought it was a necessary role, but we're part of every strategic conversation. And if we have a new opportunity area, you know, just get a call. Hey, Val, we got this idea. Like, uh-huh. what would it look like? And these are so exciting for us to be able to deploy the full suite of design thinking and design craft together for a strategy that can touch hundreds of millions of people's lives yeah. because of the values of the organization, which is why I'm at Walmart, right? It's because it aligns with my values. Very service-oriented company. Yeah. All of our profits get invested, you know, back into providing more services, whether it's financial or healthcare or whatever it is. And that's really compelling to me. So it's kind of creates this virtuous cycle of being able to kind of work at the top of our license, if you will, for these really big strategic social impact kinds of projects. So it's, it is really exciting. I do think it's a provocative and wonderful idea to have a chief design officer or chief experience officer for a hospital because we're, we're a service industry like right. like walmart we have severe supply chain issues we have often right. the, these mammoth systems we're, we're brick and mortar there's also these counterintuitive things right so like we recently a few months ago changed our returns policy right so you think about returns as kind of the drudgery of when somebody sends back something that they're it's not yeah. the, what they wanted or whatever it is But the interesting thing about returns is that the more liberal your returns policy is, the more comfort and confidence customers have in buying from you, Mm -hmm. right? So while there's the downside of that you'd have to take the merchandise back or whatever it is, there's the upside in that it draws customers for you. They they have a higher degree of trust, right? So what's the equivalent in healthcare to something like that, where you're creating the opening for exchange and for people to say, it's not just a one-way door. I think it's what you're talking about, price transparency, because what the surprise medical bill is one that <sighs> it's the worst thing for patients because it's that level of trust. They're like, hey, yes. I, I went and got care and I got this bill for like 500 bucks or $1,000, $10,000. I did not know this. And that is the number one reason I'd say patients get so upset and mistrust breeds resentment of their of their providers. Right. And then they don't avail of services early yeah. on. I had the exact same situation. I was I did not go to a Walmart. I was traveling and I needed to be in I was in a different situation. I went into a kind of pharmacy store type of store. 
And I went to one counter, their their small clinic that's it's in there and to get a COVID test. And they said, okay, but it's out of pocket. It's $500. And they said, you know, and I was just, how, how, is, how is this yeah. possible? Oh I made an God. appointment, $500 yeah. for, you know, the not the rapid test, the other one. And the woman pulled me aside and she said, oh, but if you if you drive through the drive-thru, we'll bill it to your insurance and it'll only be $100. Oh my gosh. So I got out, drove around to the drive-thru and did it there. And I wasn't billed at all for it. And so there's this kind of like, you kind of get worried without yeah. that transparency, like how how will this all unfold? And it's a miserable experience for the yeah. for the end user. And it's kind of miserable, I would imagine, for people who are participating in the system because they want 100%. to help you. Yeah. Like the woman pulling me aside and saying, Oh yeah, just go around this way. So, you know, how do we think about those adjacencies as well? So like I see a lot of, you know, you could have a great like breast cancer clinic where you go to get your mammogram, but that's not connected necessarily to work around a dietitian or, you know, trauma that you may have gone through or, or healthcare for your kids. Or so, you know, there's all sorts of practical things that you can do as well by just seeing the connection between areas where people are optimized to be separated, right? Yeah. Instead of actually how the end user experiences their world, which is- yeah you know, all together really for them. So bringing that that view from their eyes in is so essential. It'd be amazing. We're running out of time. Maybe my final <laughs> question would be, you know, I want there to be a chief design officer at every hospital system. What argument can I make to the leadership around the value of design in, in healthcare? What are some things that I can say and that your experience of, and especially about these design impact reports, I, I, I love that. Like, what, what can I tell them? Well, I do think it isn't something that, I mean, I think the design, my experience here and the design impact report showed that there were a series of steps. You can't just sort of demand to be listened to or to be, you know, to have this position because it's kind of a new concept for a lot of people. Yeah. I will say though, one of the things we do in design is instead of talking about our process, you know, here's the research we did, and, and about 20% of our team are incredible design researchers, we're, and everyone participates in design research, so we're out in the field, we're talking to people, we're doing qualitative and quantitative studies, so very, very engaged with end users to provide the insights back for those who whose roles don't afford them the opportunity to go into those different areas. And so I think that one of the things with that we focus on design is what's the outcome we hope to get? It doesn't matter if it's a chief design officer or it's a CTO or a CIO or whichever function it is. So design just happens to be excellent at producing experience outcomes and that result in people having a better relationship and trust over time. And so I think that anyone who's trying to promote the involvement at a more strategic level of design needs to level set and get alignment around what are the outcomes we hope to get. And, and generally they are shared, right? We want people to have mm -hmm. healthy, fulfilling lives. We want to serve our communities in really robust, interesting ways. We want to operate at the top of our license and feel satisfied. We want to work in a great community and, and culture. And then as soon as you have alignment on that, you kind of back it up and say, ah, I've actually got the perfect solution for that <laughs> is a, as a role that not only can be a strategic role in imagining how what those plans are, yeah. but can weave it together so that it manifests in real life. Because a lot of time you've got consultants who come in and say, oh, these are all the things that we should fix, but very hard to 
get them to manifest it. So when when a design role is both strategic and craft oriented, and everyone on my team, a small but mighty team, a couple hundred designers, we are all designers. I design mm-hmm. every single day. If you ever get a designer who says, oh, I only manage or, yeah. oh, I, I graduated out of that, probably a good person to skip working with because you want designers who design, Yeah. right? You have to stay close to the craft because without the craft, there is no strategy. Without the strategy, there's no craft, right? So I think that for me, it's really about helping align on what we're trying to get to and then backing up into what are the roles that will help us achieve those outcomes in the most intentional efficient and positive ways. And honestly, I think we're all just trying to remove some of the divisiveness and the sickness and the mm. the anxiety that exists in our systems right now. And we can do that with such respect and access and dignity. We have the potential to do that if yeah. we work together. We can bring people together in a really powerful way. And that's, I mean, if we're not doing that, I don't, I don't know what's more important than doing that. So well, if we see an exponential rise in chief design officers in hospitals, I'm going to blame it on our conversation. So I'm going to claim for that. <laughs> take, so. take credit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with thank, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. It was so good to speak with you. Such great questions. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share about this. I'm passionate about it and, and just love what you're doing to bring together these two types of thinking and sort of uncomfortable bedfellows and just creating something that can be incredibly powerful and inspiring to so many people. So thanks so much for including me. Appreciate it. If you want to know more about Valerie Casey, follow her on LinkedIn and reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Legisi, editing by Fernando Quieros. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.